Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Live Free Experience. I'm your host, Brianna Bowley, international performance coach and founder of the Live Free Movement, a movement dedicated to showing the world what else is possible. So I'm going to be really honest. I was a little bit nervous about interviewing uh, this particular individual, and I feel like somewhere amongst those nerves, I possibly didn't give him quite the intro he deserved. So I'd like to make up for that now. So today I'm chatting with John Bernard Will and John is quite the pioneer in the mixed martial arts scene. So for my non-martial arts friends and listeners, John uh, is one of the original Dirty Dozen. So the Dirty Dozen refers to the first 12 non-Brazilian black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And John is also somewhat responsible for the introduction of Brazilian jiu-jitsu to Australasia. So as I said, he's quite the pioneer. And as I say a little bit later on in uh, my chat with him, John has been quite an inspiration to me in my own martial arts journey, as well as my own journey as a traveler and as a business owner. And the dude has had quite a rich and varied array of life experience and really we only just touched the very tip of the iceberg so without further ado let's get this show on the road john bernard will everyone all right so i'm joined today by someone who has been quite an inspiration for me both on my martial arts journey and on my um, I suppose travel journey. Um, I've recently been reading his uh, book series, The Rogue Black Belt, and um, I've had the pleasure of being on the mats with him on the jiu-jitsu mats. And uh, I'm going to sort of let him share his journey a little bit, but I'd really like to introduce John Bernard Wheel. So welcome, John. Uh, thank you for having me. I don't know what to call you, Professor John. Call, call me John. Call me John. Right, That's just perfect. like my mum. Yeah, that way. I'll... <laughs> Shiver in my boots. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. John, thanks so much for jumping on. Mm, my pleasure. Um, it's awesome having you. I'm going to start off with a question which I feel like isn't very original. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but can you tell us a little bit about how you got into martial arts? Yikes. Um, okay, well, I started as a youngster, like, I guess, I don't know, 12, 13 Something like that, and um, you know, my dad just taught me some things. He used to be a policeman, so um, we moved around a little bit. We ended up in a small country town, and, and when you're the new kid on the block every year, mm-hmm. you know, the pecking order is always established, and you turn up halfway through the year. And so there was a little. I was always on the receiving end of whatever, whoever the local bully was in whatever school. So um, you know, I was kind of, I guess, picked on a little bit, and my dad taught me a few things and maybe read some books on judo and stuff like that which you know I pulled off some asotagaris and <laughs> some tomanagis like um, on the school playground so that kind of got me kind of interested um to begin with and then when I was about I think I'm about 14 14 15 years old I started doing some amateur wrestling mm-hmm. um around you know which is like olympic freestyle wrestling we call it now yep. um at, back in a local scout hall um and then when I turned about 16, that would have, that coincided with um, the time Bruce Lee kind of 
came out with his first movies. Um, so, you know, that, that got me thinking more about the Oriental martial arts. And so I began Gojikai Karate and Taekwondo while I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read some books. Uh, you know, I was fascinated and there was no internet then or anything like that. So, And there were very few books on martial arts. But one of the books was written by a guy called Don Drager who wrote about his travels. He was a, um, a U.S. Marine who was stationed in Okinawa and did a lot of martial arts research and travelled all over Asia back in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. And I read some of his books and that inspired me. So when I finished my schooling at the age of 17... I decided to follow in John Drager's bookstep,s um, inspired by his books, and uh, sorry, follow in his footsteps. So I, his bookstep,s what an idiot. Um, <laughs> leave that right in there. Do not edit that out. Um, and so I headed off to Southeast Asia, you know, and made my way along the trail um, blazed by him several decades earlier. So that's how I got into it. Awesome. Yeah. What a story, hey. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about, because what, what really stands out for me in terms of how you coach is that you really liken martial arts to life and that the journeys that you learn through martial arts um, yeah. sort of, yeah, you can pu- pull them into lessons in life. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit about what martial arts means to you? Well, the way I, I, I think it's, probably a a a mixture of you know who I am like anyway um you know I've always been a little bit analytical my father raised me to be a lateral thinker to learn more than one language to read you know and all of these things so I came into it um like that um mm-hmm. but also the way I learned my martial arts was you know not not down the the local martial arts school, which is, I guess, the the way most people learn their martial arts. Um, I learned it by traveling overseas. So I was training in countries where I couldn't understand what they were saying. Um, So I had to look and observe and then do comparative analysis between, you know, the best student in the mat or the dojo or wherever I was and and the normal students. What's the best guy doing that the other guys aren't doing? Uh, I'll do that, you know, and then model that behavior. So I... I learned the way I was learning it was probably different than the way most people learned it just by the very nature of the fact that I was, you know, in India and mm-hmm. Thailand and Japan and Brazil or wherever. So that, that was different. Um, and, and of course being over there in Asia at the age of 18, living in like the biggest slum in Southeast Asia in Surabaya and the, all these kind of different towns, I, I was experiencing life on on the yeah. cutting raw edge of it, um, both the good bits and the bad bits. So that was woven, you know, and I was very impressionable, right? You know, when you're 18 to 21, uh-oh, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> Older than 21. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, you know, but, but in that time, you're, you know, you're super impressionable, right? Um, everything, yep. like, is, is impresses. So I, my martial art learning was so... Um, so intricately woven in with me growing up um, Mm -hmm. that I was, you know, incapable of separating out, you you know, how I was discovering myself and, 
trying to work my life out and my martial art training, and they became inseparable. Um, so yeah. it wasn't like something that, that I did on Tuesday and Thursday night as a hobby. Uh, it was more than that. It was like yeah. defining who I was or I was trying to define, find out who I was. So that, it is inseparable for my life. And so mm. I don't see – it's really easy for for me to, um, you know, draw the life lessons and things like that out of it because that's where I learned them. I learned them mm. in, you know, while I was trying to – find my feet as a martial artist i was making these and those three those books that you talked about them my rogue black belt books um they are an autobiography but that's not what why i wrote them and and it's not how i started out i i started out by asking myself this question what are the most important thing life lessons i've ever had like the most important epiphanies in my life what are they mm-hmm. i started writing them down and there was 20, then 30, then 40, and it ended up to be like 60 of them. Mm-hmm. So after I wrote them all down, I then decided, well, what order did I learn them in? And when did I learn them? Like, when did I learn that thing? So I put them in chronological order. And, um, and you know, of course, with each lesson was a story, you know, some little thing that happened. And so then I decided, well, it, it's looking like an autobiography, but it, that's not that's not why I wrote it. And um, yeah. it, it meant to be, you know, I think my original title for the books was the 20 best things I've ever learned. You know, that's what, the, <laughs> and then it would turn into 40 and then 60 and then an autobiography. But yeah, that's the real title should be the 60 best things I've ever learned. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nah. yeah. Maybe I should have called it that. <laughs> Maybe. It <might> work better. <laughs> so, I mean, you've traveled all over the shop. I, hmm. I, I presume you've traveled, you know, even more on top of the I, I don't actually know where the sort of road black belt series kind of cuts off in your life um but i presume you've sort of added on on top of that hmm. what's your favorite destination and why oh my goodness it's difficult to know because it, it's like saying what's your favorite book or movie i i can't be pinned down to it because each movie and each book you know it's like people right each everyone brings something you know it, it's something mm-hmm. unique it's it's like it's difficult to compare. It's like the latest movie, Blade Runner. You know, um, people go, which is the better, the original Blade Runner or the latest release? They are two completely different things, and I'm not going to be drawn into trying to compare. You know, which is better because they're two different things. It's like yeah. what's better, an Easter egg or a you know real egg? They're both awesome. <laughs> Fair um, enough. So I so it's difficult to know. Um, you know, they're they're all you know. I, I love Italy. I like Italy, like, but, but not for martial arts. I mean, I like it for, you know, you're, you're touching a wall that's 2,000 years old and every yeah. street you walk up. But, you know, it's like that. Everything's kind of steeped in some kind of history, which we don't have here. Uh, I love mm-hmm. Italy. I'm going back there in May. Um, nice. So I like Italy. I like Mongolia for completely yep. different reasons. Um, you know, there's grass as far as you can see into the horizon and no roads. Um, yep. and no one's allowed to own land and you can just go out there and you keep traveling until you find a little yurt and ask them if you can sleep tonight. I mean, it's kind of a, then get up and shoot an arrow, ride a horse and do some wrestling. <laughs> so it's, you Mongol, you know, all, all these things was, you know, Italy's got gelati. <laughs> you make a good point. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Oh, I, I honestly, I don't even know where to begin. Um, having read the books, it's 
I almost feel like you've had a million different life, a million different lives within within the one. Um, yeah. Your story's pretty diverse and um, a little bit hard to believe. Yeah. <laughs> respectfully, because it's yeah, it's it's a crazy story. Um, yep, it is. <laughs> yeah. I haven't had what time I... for a real job. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, maybe I mean. Well, I say that jokingly, but maybe that's a part of it. You know, most mm. people, I guess, you know, they have a job, so that job um, tethers them to a location and a kind of a lifestyle, and they're doing that. Um, but I've never really done that. I've always been mm. a bit of a vagabond, um, and I've I found a way. Yeah, you know, I've found a way to make it work, um, and found a way to eke an existence. You know, eke a life out of what I like doing. And so mm-hmm. that's allowed me to, you know, travel and and have a lot of different diverse experiences mm-hmm. um, more than, you know, if I'd been working, you know, in IT or something like that. <laughs> so I don't mean anything by that other than, you know, if I'm tethered to the one spot, I guess I've just always found a way. And it hasn't yeah. always been, I mean, it's a trade-off, right? I mean, when mm-hmm. I was 35 years old, I didn't, I didn't own, I, would, I wouldn't have had 500 bucks in the bank. Yeah. At the age of 35. Yeah. You know, so there's a price to pay. Um, mm. But then I figured out a lot of way, things to do, and now I'm, I've got all that squared away, and I don't have to work ever again if I don't want. But, it, you know, it, there's a, but I wouldn't change it. I, as a, my, mm. mother, my mother was still telling me to get a real job when I was 50 years <laughs> of age. Oh, that's comforting <laughs> to know. I get that one often, get a real job. <laughs> get a real job, but you can't. I mean, you can. You can do whatever you want, and, but if you love it, if you love it, I mean, no one loves everything. There's always, it doesn't matter how much you love something, 10% of it is going to be a grind, you know, the getting on the plane bit or bit, waiting in a queue in an airport bit or, you know, whatever it is. But mm. if you can find something that you love doing, you haven't got a job. You know, there's no mm. work. You're not working. Absolutely. You don't work a day in your life if you can do that. So I encourage people to to do that. Like, don't listen to people don't listen to sensible advice, um, you know, which is get a job and save your money and buy a house and do all that. You've got one life. You know, you've got mm. one life and you need to extract the most amount of adventure and enjoyment out of it and that's going to involve risk-taking. Mm. And if you're not taking risks and you just play the game and do the normal thing, that's okay but you're condemning yourself to a lot a normal life. Mm. I, 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 don't, I don't like that. My, my dad told me when I was quite young, he says, if you want, look around. If you want to get what everyone else has got, do what they're doing. If you yeah. want to get something different, do something different. Yes, I love mm. that. Mm. Very cool. So one of the main sort of stories within your story that really – pulls me in is um and you'll have to excuse my ignorance here Mm. um the the name of the particular art escapes Mm. me but you wrote about your time in india learning a yes so the ancient striking art Mm. um can you tell us a bit about that that is a (laughs) um an interesting and i've I've had a lot of people from india um writing to me asking all about that and where they should go and train it um, sadly, it's all over. Um, to the best of my ability, I, I spent a couple of months, um, I think it was two or three years ago now, 
really digging deep, making phone calls, connecting to people in India. It's gone. It's all over. Um, there's only a, um, what do you call it? Not like a real version, but a mock version. Like, what do you call that? Um, you know, when someone, like a ceremonial version of it. Yep. Where, where maybe there's a big wedding um, down south in India and they reel out a couple of people who kind of mime their way through it. Um, yep. There's only that. There's not the authentic idea. But the original, the, the story was I was, I knew what it was I, and I found out about it through Don Drager's books, going back to mm -hmm. my original inspiration. I'm going to stand up here and walk over to my bookshelf mm -hmm. and pull out a book. Where is it? It's called the Mala Purana. Mala okay. Purana. And the Mala Purana is a hard to get, if not impossible to get book. I was about uh, to say, I'm presuming we won't be finding this at our local library. You will not be. And <laughs> there's only, there were two copies of it in the Indian State Reference Library. Okay. Now there's only one. But hang on. <laughs> That's a different story. Um, I'm not going to go into it. But um, <laughs> I'm looking at this book now. And it's, there are only, as far, oh, here we go. First edition, oh, 500 copies ever done. And that's it. Um, wow. And it was published way back. Uh, and it was published in 1964. And mm -hmm. it was published during the period where, you know, England ran, um, England ran India. And it was about this ancient art. Um, and it's, I'll, I'll read you the first part. Malapurana, a rare Sanskrit text on the Indian wrestling as practiced by the Jesse Mullers. And the Jesse Mullers, Muller means fighter or wrestler, and Jesse means um, he who cannot be beaten. <laughs> so okay. That's, your, that's a hardcore um, surname. And <laughs> that, that family practiced for about a 1,000 years. Um, the women traditionally were the healers, yep. bone setters and healers, and the men were bodyguards. And that's what that family did as a living, um, their clan going way back about a thousand years yeah and the art is called vajra mushti um that they practice and they wear a knuckle duster on one hand and basically it's valetudo um meaning anything goes with a knuckle duster so they punch kick take down wrestle ground and pound locks and submissions with a knuckle wow. duster on the right hand very hardcore and i i i had this book and because um the book was published when the English occupied um, or ran India. The, they, there was some kind of ruling that if you, any new books that were published, uh, half of the book or one-third of the book or something had to be written in English. So the first half of this book is actually the English translation of the Sanskrit original, which is the back half. Wow. And it's got four pictures in it, um, four photos. And it's, it, the, all, the only hint that I have is that the book was published in a city called, by, at the University of Baroda, which is the capital of Gujarat, a desert state in India. So I got on a train, went down there, didn't know anything, went to, the city's got five million people. I went to um, a university and I, 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 I asked around, I just yelled out, anyone speak English? Anyone speak English? And everyone looked at me blankly and one person eventually put up I forget, I think it was a guy, put up his hand and said, I do. And I said, do you want to earn 20 bucks? You know, and they said, yes. <laughs> and I said, I need your guide. I need a guide. And so, he, yep. so I got him to take me to the oldest um, Krishna temple in the city.
because I noticed that the Jesse Mullers in the photos, they had their head shaven with a little ponytail, mm -hmm. which is a thing that the Krishna worshippers did. So um, he took me around to the oldest temple and I said, translate this. And I found the priest, an old priest. And I said, have you ever heard of the Jesse Muller family? And the, he asked the priest and the priest kind of looked unhappy and like he wasn't interested in helping and pointed across the road to a house. And, I, and I, he said, go and ask over there. So I, I went out and uh, went across the road and knocked on the door and guess who opened it? <laughs> the, the guy in the photo. The guy in the photo. I nearly dropped wow. dead. I mean, so my first door, you know, <laughs> out of five million people. So there he was and I, I went, holy shit. And I, I had the book in my hand and he looked at it and went, ah, and he recognized the book. And then wow. he opened the book, and there he was. He said, that's me, you know, and then there it was. So I stayed with him for a bit and did some training, and um, that was fantastic, you know. I didn't know what I was looking at, but they, they knew groundwork and um, took me to an old room that there was a wrestling pit and all the little, all these little alcoves in the wall around the outside of the room, and, and in each one was one of these weapons that they used to hold in their right hand, like a knuckle duster. Mm -hmm. And he said, that one's from 700 years old, you know, and he was a famous guy. And they all had, oh, I was in heaven, like I was drooling. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, such a, it was such a visceral experience for me. I mean, I still get, right now I've got the shivers talking about it. So, so. Yeah, so it you don't need the shivers. Yeah, it was a, such a powerful moment for me. Um, I spent, I spent just over a week with them. Yeah, but wow. they're, dead. they're now dead because they were... When they, um, at that time, he, he, I'm guessing, he would have been in his 80s. Yeah. Mid-70s. Mm -hmm. So he's passed on. They've all passed on. They've all, there's none of them left anymore. It's all over. They're mm. all doing IT and um, tech support. <laughs> or something. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Wow. That's mm. a uh, pretty wild story. Yeah. That's good. I'm looking, they've got the book right here. It's pretty cool. Mm. So I wanted to dive into, because I know that uh, particularly sort of in, I suppose, the early part of your story when you first uh, began traveling across to Indonesia from Australia to start mm -hmm. learning Salat. Am I pr pronouncing that right? Yep, perfect. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, money was a major issue. <laughs> um, and I know that like a lot of people I speak to sort of have that, mm. I'm going to call it an excuse. Yeah. Um, that money is the issue that stops them from traveling. No. Can you kind of dive into how you made it work on such a tight schedule, uh, such a tight budget? Sorry. Yeah. Um, look, look, you don't need much money in Asia. You certainly didn't need much money back when I was there. Yeah. And I think it's still the same case now. If you're prepared to sleep, you know, in some hovel. Um, but I, I used to, I used to do any. When I say I've never had a real job, that's not true. I've never had a career kind of job, or a, you know. Yeah. Um, I've, so I've done labouring, and I've been a garbo, and I've you know worked in a fish cannery, and so, I, so I just I'd come back, I'd work a couple of months here somewhere, and get money, somehow, yeah. and you know labouring or whatever, and then that would last me ages overseas. So it's just a matter, matter, and plus I supplemented it over there. Like I do things, um, you know. When I was in Bali, I would go and teach the security at some of the tourist hotels, and in exchange for that, I'd get um, free meals and yeah, you know, I uh, work for the cops, um, and I'd get a free motorbike. Uh, yeah. To you, so you'd you just found little ways to, 
you know, get these small rewards. And that that was all I needed because I'd be in rice and fish. And, yeah. Know, I, I wasn't living in, like, the tourist lifestyle, which is pretty expensive, like, yeah. I mean, comparatively, yeah. right? Um, but if you're living in a slum, you're living on $10 a week. Yeah. So it it wasn't ever a problem. And I never cared about money. I'm a, It's never interested me. Mm-hmm. I've never been interested. I've just, it's a... Um, I mean, I don't, I don't need to work anymore. I've got enough money to last the rest of my life twice over. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I could retire. And my accountant's telling me five years ago, retire, <laughs> stop doing it. But I love doing it. And, I, mm. um, and I've got other reasons that I'm doing it, but it's not about, it's not about the money. Um, mm-hmm. The money comes as a consequence of doing something right. And I believe that it's... I heard, first heard this concept from a guy called um, Robert Kiyosaki, mm-hmm. who you, you might have heard the books Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yep, sure have. Okay, so Robert Kiyosaki heard it from a much smarter guy called, who wasn't a salesman, <laughs> who's a much more interesting person called Buckminster Fuller, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called The Critical Path, one of the true geniuses of last century, The Critical Path. Buckminster Fuller was a real genius, and he was on about this idea that um, and the, the perfect analogy, I'll give it to you because it resonated with me. A bee goes from flower to flower, flower collecting pollen. So a bee to to inhabit its true beeness is not driven by cross pollination of flowers, which is what happens as a result of what it does. So you know, by, by going from flower to flower, it's driven by that. So its purpose is to go and get the honey. Mm-hmm. But how do we know it's doing its, what it should be doing? It's because something much larger than that happens as a consequence, and that is flowers get cross-pollinated. Mm. So Buckminster Fuller was on about that. If you can find your pathway and do what you want, how do you know you're on the pathway? You know because all these awesome things fall into place and start working for you. Mm-hmm. That, But they are unintended consequences money being one of them mm-hmm. so one of the ways you can know you're on the right path is you, you don't have to worry about money and you don't have to worry about this and that because all these because you're doing what you really should be doing mm-hmm. and when you do that he i don't really fully believe in this but the universe well he would say would fall into place behind you and everything works out mm-hmm. now that's a little bit too much like the secret you know for my life but <laughs> Um, there is a kind of a truth to it that's a little bit complex to talk about, but it's, 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 and no one would be interested, um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, you know, you get these byproducts and new age, I mean, economists would call it unintended consequences, one yeah. of which is you make a living, you know, and you, and if you do a really good job and you're really into what you're doing and you're somewhat organized, you make a really good living, but that's mm. not why you're doing it. <laughs> that's not it's not it's not in the slightest reason why you're doing it it's Absolutely. an unintended byproduct so some people who don't get it can look at warren buffett and go why would that old bastard be trying to do new business deals now he's already got 60 billion dollars what does he want more money for he's obsessed with money i will guarantee you he is completely uninterested in money 
Mm. In fact, Warren Buffett, from what I saw a documentary um, last year about him, still drives the same car he drove 30 years ago, still buys dip breakfast at McDonald's in the morning and still lives <laughs> in a 50-year-old house. He clearly does not care about money. Mm. That's just the way, that's just his scorecard um, that, allows, that allows him to measure how well he's playing the game that he loves playing, mm. that he gets obviously a lot of joy out of um, and everything. So you see, people who don't get it can look at that scene and really misread it. Um, you know. So anyway, um, that was long-winded, but it goes to your question about you know, um, money and, you know, how you find a way and all of that stuff. I, I never mm. cared about it and I still don't. And I mean, you know, I'm not stupid. So I'm, um, you know, when you make a small amount of money, even a small amount of money, um, you don't, ha you can get a lot, you can go a long way. Like you, you can go a long way going to a farmer's market and buy, you know, organic vegetables directly from the farm. You can't eat $50 worth of vegetables. Mm. <laughs> In a week, yeah. you know, but if you go to the supermarket or you, you go to restaurants every night, that's a different story. But you can live cheaply. And I did. And I lived cheaply and I became frugal only because, because I had to. But then you keep that habit for 30 years. And what happens when you mm. start earning more money? You don't use it because you're used to having these simple, you know, um, needs. So you end up having excess money, which is like a way you get a bunch of it because um, here's an idea. Spend less than what you earn. Boom. <laughs> what a concept. A lot of people forget that one. Well, yeah. You know, I was talking, speaking to someone this morning about that, actually. Like the secret to 90% of people's problems, if, they wanna, if they're overweight, eat less food than what you need energy to put out. So be on, mm -hmm. you know, calorie deficit. And do the opposite with money. Spend less than what you earn, so you get an mm. abundance. That's it. Job done. Like it's, it's not hard. Simplify. So they swap it. They should deal with money the same way they deal with food, and they should deal <laughs> with food the same way they deal with money. And if they do that, everyone's like rich and fit. <laughs> and that sounds weird, but it's kind of. <laughs> we're we're solving our life world issues here, aren't we? Sorry, a bit a bit long-winded, but there. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Mm. Um, cool. So I have a question. I actually put it out to some of my followers. Um, mm. I mentioned that I was interviewing you and uh, I wanted to know what they wanted to hear from you. And I got mm. this question through from a friend of mine, Michelle, mm -hmm. um, which I loved. So I wanted to ask this one. Mm. What's the most valuable non-self-defense related skill that martial arts has taught you? Um, paying attention to detail. Cool. So, um, because that's something that you, that I've you mean that I learned in the martial arts. Or? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I, I had to learn that, right? So say I'm training in Indonesia or Thai. Mm -hmm. Well, I speak. Say I'm training in Thailand because I can't speak Thai. So mm -hmm. I look at the guy. Who's the best here? Oh, that guy. Clearly. Why? Why is he better than that guy? What's he doing with his footwork? That I see. I see the difference. So you have to pay attention to detail, right? If you yep. want to learn how to model behaviour. Mm -hmm. um, so. You're paying attention to it. So now, now if, you, if you do that and now you go and apply that to anything, mm. house design, um, gardening, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. You apply attention to detail to that, you're going to get an extraordinary result. 
So that would that would have to be. I mean, I've learned a lot of things, but I, that that would be very high up there on the on the most you know a skill that it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether it's fly fishing, whether it's designing homes, painting, flower arranging, or, or hair, cutting people's hair. You, paying attention to detail is going to set you apart from 90% of the population. Mm. And um, that would be, you know, if I could wave my magic wand to give everyone a gift, it will be that would be the thing that I do. I mean, it'd be a world full of OCD weirdos, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that would be there'd be something, you know, because what's the opposite to that? <laughs> mm. You know, making no distinctions between things and stuff like that. You know, a hyena is the same as a dog. Well, really, a zebra is the same as a horse. Really. Mm. You know, and, and and that's that's not good. It's not you have to pay attention to detail. Mm. I like that one. Mm. Very cool. Um, now I, I I think I know what your answer is going to be with this one. <laughs> but um, if you could choose any other profession, mm. what would it be? Yikes. <laughs> um, you think I'm going to say writing? Well, no, I think you're going to say you wouldn't choose any other profession, but. <laughs> I wouldn't. Yeah, I don't know. Um, boy, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like I like a lot of things. I I like design, like as a thing, mm-hmm. like just design. I like that. And mm-hmm. when I say design, I mean like today when I finish this conversation, I'm designing my notes from last year. So yep. all the notes of all the classes I'm doing, I'm getting them, I'm rewriting them, and I'm optimizing the order. So if I was going to teach 15 things from Crucifix, why would I teach that before that and why? What's my reason? And then kind of design it. And even then, I like the page the way I like it with some little diagrams. So I kind of – I like design in-house. I, like, I design my own home. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I heard like about that. that. Yeah, I, I, and, the you know, just the way it's all laid out and everything and – I do like the concept of design, and I think mm-hmm. that would be maybe something in that field or writing, which is like pure laziness, because you can travel and write. You can, mm-hmm. you know, you can be sitting on the Melfi Coast and write something. Maybe I'd be a vlogger. Mm, I can <laughs> see I you doing that. To, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I'm not funny. Um, yes, you are. But, uh, vlogging, but that'd be pretty cool. But I don't know if these people make a living or not, but I probably wouldn't care about that. I'd find a way to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Mm. Maybe design or travel vlogging. <laughs> mm. So you touched on then that you designed your own house. Um, oh, yeah. mm. I've I've been told about this um, by a mutual friend of ours. Mm. Um Am I right in saying that you sort of so you you did it all yourself in how long was it? Not long. Yeah. No, I, do, I when I I like the I'm a bit I like to immerse myself in something. Yeah. Ask my wife, she'll yell at me and go, "I've been yelling at you in eight minutes and you've not responded." And then she bashes me <laughs> and I look at her, and go, "Really?" So I get a bit in there. Um, she's stabbing at me now with a fork. <laughs> um, so I. I like so with the design of my house, I just googled like um, best twenty houses ever designed by humans, and um, you get them all up, and then you read yep. all about them, and then you read do some read some stuff on best architects of the last century, 
and then you read up a bit about them and you know that's monday <laughs> and then tuesday you know you learn you, you get google sketchup and then by wednesday you know how to do google sketchup and you know all about the best 20 houses ever design and then by wednesday thursday you're drawing you, you come up some co concepts and the, you know it's like that you just stick your head down your ass up you do some reading you drink lots of coffee and after 40 hours you've you've done 80 percent of it and then you just let your brain, you know, do its thing for a couple mm. of days and you wake up and go, I know what I want. And then you draw it and that's it. So, and I added some original design ideas, like I know what I wanted, some, you know, concepts, vision, caveman living on a ledge. So I wanted long ledges overlooking things. And so, you know, it, yeah, it only took a week. That's wild. <laughs> Yeah, but it's good. We we actually won. What did we win, baby? What was it? Some house of the year, regional or state? Wow. Yeah. So we won that award. I don't know the, the builder state, the Victorian house of the year award or something. I don't give a shit. My wife put it in there. <laughs> Didn't you? Who did the build? Oh right, the guy who drew it did. So I drew it all up and then gave it to a draftsman to. That's crazy. That's in. a um, that's, that's cool. a very good example of what the human mind's capable of when they really um put themselves through something. Just do it. Immerse, mm -hmm. you know, immerse, jump in there. Mm -hmm. You just jump in there. If you want to learn a new language, you know, you just relabel everything in your house, mm. <laughs> you know, for a week with a mm. billion sticky notes, and you just, you know, you can just put yourself into it. Um, anyone, and and you, you'd be people could be amazed at what they can do in a couple of weeks' time. Mm. You know, they can really, really go a long way with stuff, um, especially now, right? You got Google. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. You can, you can do it. There's yeah, we've got it easy now with the internet. Right, of course you can. You know, you can Google stuff, and you can get into the mindset of some architect of last century who did the, you know, the waterfall house and. Mm. I mean America and they just look at that and oh, you can get into their headspace and yeah I, I, I like I like that idea mm. Mm. awesome um, we're jumping around here a little bit but uh -huh. I wanted to ask um, what's Chuck Norris like <laughs> oh, he he's a very lovely person he, he Chuck's great he's a really very he's kind of like religious which is, okay. you know, like the middle of the America, Texas. Yeah. Well, if you're in Texas or Utah or anywhere down that middle part, you are religious. Um, which I'm not. Um, but uh, but that that goes hand in hand with, in theory, um, being really super polite, and you know, you can imagine super polite and giving of your time and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So he, he's a great guy, you know. And I guess I could sum him up in one story i was teaching him a private lesson one day in los angeles mm -hmm. him and a friend um bob wall i think it was and uh we were the door was unlocked and we we're training and these two kids opened up put their head in and went what's going on here you know and then the kids eyes opened up and one of them pointed and go you're chuck norris <laughs> and chuck said yeah come on in and ended up giving the kid his hat cat and we showed them something on the mat, and then they ran away with the story. I guess it was pretty good. So, you know, he's just awesome, right? He's not like elitist or 
mm-hmm. some kind of movie star who who thinks they're whose ego's out of control, but you get a lot of that in Hollywood. Like people mm-hmm. start to, you know, and they're all doing facelifts and this and that and spending all their money and then wondering why they're broke. I mean, no, he's just a really down-to-earth garden variety guy. Mm. And he's, yeah, he's awesome. I, I really I really like him. Mm, very cool. Yeah. Charles. Awesome. Um, I, was, I've got... I was told off by him once. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've I've been told off by Chuck Norris <laughs> because I I was teaching. I went every year for quite a few years to teach all these black belts yep. in Las Vegas, and um, he told me to come up to his room. He had to have a serious talk with me, so I went up there with my friend David Meyer, and he was up there with three or four of their you know their council of their organisation, and they said, mm-hmm. "John, we have to." We have to have a serious talk to you. And I go, I'm thinking, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? Did I hurt anyone? Did I not? I can't remember that. And he said, you you can't be talking about evolution. Because I, I, I made a faux pas. I, I was talking about flinch response and startle reflex and, you know, how people mm-hmm. supply and fight and how that's ever since we were evolved. <laughs> For mm-hmm. a couple hundred thousand years, we've been developing that and they've gone, whoa. <laughs> You can't talk about evolution in the Bible Belt of America, let me tell you that much. So, um, yes, they told me off. Well, there you I, go. I, I won't mention that ever again. <laughs> oh, yeah. very cool. Mm. Um, all right, I've got the big three to, to finish off with. So three questions. Uh, the first one, what's yep. the best advice anyone's ever given you? Mm-hmm. Best advice? Everyone's well. There's a lot of people who've given me lots of advice. Um, what was that? Be good to my wife. What you saying? <laughs> um, my wife's in the background there, uh, floating around. I would look. I've had so much good advice, but look at like. Can I go with more than one? I'll just give you a couple. Of quick go for ones. it. Yep. My father, the early one of the earliest ones I could ever say was my father spotted the house up on a hill. He said, "What color is that house?" I said, "That's white." He says, "You don't know if it's white." I go, "It's white. I can see it." He goes, "It's white on this side. Go up, run around it." So I had to run up the hill and do a lap around the house and come back because it could have been green on the other side. He, and then he gave me a little speech about how you got to always look at something from as many perspectives as you can before you make up your mind. So that was pretty good advice. Yeah, that's old. solid. I was eight. Um, wow. You know, look at look at get like so. That's like goes to the Jewish argument of you know they do that. So I've got a point of view and you've got a point of view and we're debating. So mm-hmm. I debate my side, you debate your side, then we switch and I've got to debate your point of view and you've got to debate mine. So by doing that, we see the thing from different sides before we arrive at some kind of version of. You know, that's a really great idea. So mm-hmm. that was really awesome advice. Another mm-hmm. bit of advice which someone gave me, which I didn't realize the value of till 30 years later, such a simple thing is save 10% of everything you earn and invest it. Mm-hmm. Do that. Um, even if you're only earning $100, put $10 away. And over time, when you invest that, you know, then everyone can become a millionaire in, in, in 25 years, um, mm-hmm. even on an ordinary income from like working in McDonald's. So you just save 10% of everything that you earn. Um, that's really good advice, but that's about like, you know, you won't get the value for a quarter of a century, but 
that at some point you'll go, shit, I'm glad I did that. Because <laughs> mm, that frees you up to, it gives you options, right? And, mm, and just then, the emotional sort of safety net there, knowing that you've you've got yeah. backings, yeah. Yeah, and then, then you're doing things for the right reasons, and you know, and then you're not compromising, and you're doing all those things. You don't want to have to, because everyone can be like starving artist and integrity, and I'm not compromising, and then they become 60 and they're bankrupt. Mm. Then they start what I've seen. They start mm-hmm. compromising, selling out, losing their integrity, and mm-hmm. doing all that stuff. So you don't want to find yourself there. So just yeah. be disciplined and, you know, put away a put put a tiny bit. In other words, let me put it another way for you. Don't mm-hmm. eat the marshmallow. You know, you've heard that story, right? No, I haven't. The marshmallow experiment. You got time? No? Two minutes? Yeah, go for it. Great experiment done a while ago. They got five or six hundred kids. It's an old experiment called the marshmallow mm-hmm. experiment. And they said, I'll give you a marshmallow right now, or wait five minutes and I'll give you two. Your choice. Yeah. And 90% of the kids, or 80% of the kids, scoffed the marshmallow. Yeah. I want it right now. I want it now. Mm-hmm. And 20% waited five minutes and got two. And then they tracked those kids for 20 years. This is mm. the amazing part about the experiment. And because I want to see, there's this, this, this delaying gratification rather than spending it all today. Does delaying gratification help make you a better life? And they found that those 20 kids, every single one of them, apparently as it goes, 100% of them had fantastic lives. Mm. And they had, they had enough money, they had great relationships, and they were happy. And the 80% of them that scoffed the marshmallow, 20% of them had great lives and mm. 80% of them were miserable. So, you know, the, the, the answer, the moral of the story is don't eat all the marshmallows right now. Mm. Like, can, can, you, can you just hold off and put a bit away for later? Like have the, be, the discipline to do it and mm-hmm. um, delaying, rather than I want it now, I want it now, you know, like that little girl in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Yeah. Um, if you can just fight that, and then then you're going to be set later on. Mm. And I, I think that's really great advice, the marshmallow advice. I didn't learn that. Um, I only learned that, you know, maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. But yeah. the point of it I learned a long time ago, which was save 10% of everything you earn. And I don't just talk about money. I'm, you can talk about a lot of things. Yeah, right. absolutely. That, that 10% could be, you know, 10% of your energy into something other than martial arts or, you know, whatever it is you're into. Like, are mm-hmm. you all about that thing? But just put 10% of your brain into, you know, relationships and making that better and saving for the future and your health and, you know, just mm-hmm. just 10%. Yeah, and that will absolutely. make a giant difference. Rather than put a hundred percent into the thing, and even be the best in the world of it, but the rest of your life is falling apart. Mm. You don't want that. Perfect. Noted. <laughs> don't eat the marshmallow. Don't eat the marshmallow. <laughs> awesome. But don't eat both of them. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> yeah. All right. Question two. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's now? I think this one might be a tough one for you. Oh yeah. Um, what's the most profound experience of your life? The most profound experience. I've had a lot of experiences, so it's difficult to tease out the most profound one. 
She's waving at me. <laughs> She's pointing to herself. <laughs> she might be right. I mean, it, it's it's a profound and difficult word. Mm-hmm. Certainly, my wife is correct in, in that I think the single best decision I've ever made and the experience was like meeting her and yeah and and making the decision um yeah to be with her that was that was pretty cool i mean that mm. that that certainly been had the most positive impact on my life hundred mm. percent um but profound's a weird thing you know because that might profound can be this like deep and this really uh, this visceral illuminating moment but it, it maybe only impacts a small part so it's hard to know i yeah mm-hmm. it's a difficult one you are right it's a it's a, it's a, <laughs> a tricky one profound mm. yeah i might cool. i might i might get back to you on that one easy <laughs> if Sounds i remember good. it <laughs> <laughs> all right and the third one what's the biggest sacrifice anyone's ever made for you wow it's a great question thank you the biggest sacrifice anyone's ever made for me yeah She's again pointing at herself. <laughs> you have to be here to appreciate it. Um, she might be right again. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm really fortunate in that I've known some very awesome people in my life. And yep. there's a lot of people who have made sacrifices and really helped me. Um, yeah. Biggest sacrifice. Mm. No, I think you've stumped me again. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I've I've because I've had so many interactions with so many people who are very generous um, with yep. their time. With the, which is which is why I think it's always important to try to help as many people as you can because I ask how. Why has my life turned out the way it is? It's because people have helped me. Mm. You know, people have given of their time. Um, yeah. Which is important because that you've got to understand what just happened when someone does that. <laughs> you know, they they traded some of their, you know, your the, the 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 sands are running through the hourglass for every one of us. Yeah. And those sands represent you and your life, mm-hmm. and they're disappearing at yeah. the same rate. Billionaire and pauper alike. So when someone gives their time to you, they are literally taking some of the sand out of their hourglass and putting it in your hand. Yeah. Wow. Right. So mm. when you're cognizant of that, when someone goes out of their way um, and helps you and gives you their time, that is a, you know, it's a real, it's something real. Um, mm. So that's why I kind of, I guess I'm finding it difficult to answer the question because so many people have done that. Then it's hard to say that someone's sand is worth more than someone else's sand. Mm-hmm. That's why you know it's, I'm having I'm struggling. I, I'm thinking of lots of different um, examples of it, but you know, I can't pick one out. Mm, I think that was the perfect response. Mm. Mm. Um, you made me think of something then, and I'm, mm. I'm not sure whether I'd read it in your book or whether I'd heard you say it on the mats or, mm. I don't know, maybe I've heard it on another podcast interview you've done, but I remember this really landed for me recently. Um, you spoke about how if we had to condense our life into a single day, um, you know, so the timeline of our life was condensed down to a single 24 hours, um, 
ask yourself the question, what time would it be? Yeah. And that landed for me, you know, I'm, I'm still young. I'm only, you know, 25, but yeah. that really landed for me that, you know, yeah, um, yeah we got to make the most of it. Yes. Mm. Because I, I don't think people, and I put myself in that category as well, but it, it, it beca- as you get older, it becomes, you know, more obvious because mm. um, there's less of it. You know, the conveyor belt, you know, people die, your friends, some of them die, and they're dying. Your parents is the first one. That's the big one. You know, your parents, mm-hmm. one of your parents dies and the, or the other one dies, and you, and, you, and you go, oh, my goodness, I'm next. You know, it's just that you realize that you're standing on a conveyor belt and there's an end. Mm. And that's something that you don't get when you're a kid, you know, yep. like life's forever, right? And um, and depending on the kind of life you live, you you may have experienced, you know, people that have have family members and close people die of cancer are much more aware of it than mm-hmm. people whose lives are just rolling along and, you know, they're all distracted by the day-to-day. Yeah. Um, so I think some of us are more aware than others. and. I, it's really, it's important. That's the great leveler. It doesn't matter whether you're Warren Buffett or whether mm-hmm. you're an unemployed, you know, someone. Um, you, we've all got the same time. We've got the same 24 hours, and it's all going by at the same rate. Yeah. What are you doing with it? How can mm-hmm. you extract the maximum amount of value out of that time? And mm-hmm. you know, see, so that ties in, Brianna, with what I was talking about before. That's why. So if you said, "Oh, John, I'll come around and help you out with that," and you did. I, mm. I, re, I get it. I get what you've just done. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've said, I know that I'm on this conveyor belt. I know I've had, I'm, 11, I'm eight seconds to midnight. You know, it's 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've only got to midnight. And yet you're still going to give me three minutes of your time? Oh, my goodness. Mm. So I'm really aware of it. Um, you know, I don't think most people are. And, um, mm. But I am. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I am, <laughs> and and I learnt I learnt that on the mat. I, well, I've I've used it on the mat. I I know that when people like if I'm teaching a seminar, and someone's come there like you were there the other week, and mm-hmm. you were part of it, I know that you've done this. You have given your time. Mm-hmm. You've traded in some of the grains of your your, your grains of sand to earn the money for the seminar. Mm-hmm. And then you've driven in your car, that's more grains. And then you've spent the time at the seminar, that's more. And then you've got to drive home. So by the time it's all said, done and dusted, you, you've spent, you've traded, a, you know, some very valuable stuff, the most mm-hmm. valuable thing in the world, your time, to spend that time with me on the mat. So it is 100% on me to do the absolute best job I can. If I just walk in there and go through the motions, that is utter bullshit because it means I am not cognizant of what you just did for that. Mm. So I'm not aware of the trade that just happened. So that is no good. And, and that's why I, that's at the heart of why I try to do my best. Mm-hmm. You know, I really put in, I try to do it. I, I plan I try to do the best job I can because of that, because I'm aware of the deal that's going on between us yeah. in terms of the preciousness of, you know, the time, mm-hmm. all of our time, um, yours as well as mine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think it's important to notice. And if people realize that more, they'd be less worried about the stupid little things that get us all bent oh, yeah. out of shape, you know, yeah. so easily about 
someone said this to us on the internet, this thing about us or whatever the hell. These are just little gnats and mosquitoes buzzing around and causing us to freak out. Mm. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so, John, look, you've you've lived such an incredible life so far. Um, <laughs> what do we expect from you in the future? What's to come? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I mean, more of the same for the next year or two. Yep. Um, you know, I'm going to keep teaching seminars. I'm, I've got 100 this year to do. Um, wow. Um, so that's a bit, and and um, but I squeeze in a fair bit of interesting living mm-hmm. in amongst all that. I go to Europe to teach a bunch of seminars in May. I've got 16, oh. I think, to do in England. Nice. But then after that, I my wife will fly over and she'll meet me in Milan, and then we'll have mm-hmm. two weeks off, you know. To, so in amongst it, I we weave in some, and, and we're going to do more and more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm going to do some work, I'm somewhere teaching I'll just try and do more of that um and I teach you know I teach private lessons every morning and then I teach at my school you know Monday through Thursday is when my classes are on so I'm there tonight for a couple of hours mm-hmm. yeah so that's my normal routine I kind of like it I like routines and things like that I like a bit of adventure and crazy stuff out of left field too but also I think I'm I really like my routine yeah I go to Italy for two weeks and it's awesome but after two weeks I go that's it I want to go back to my yeah, I want to go back and do my Tabata on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and my morning <laughs> privates and my evening classes, and because I just like. And I think we need. Um, this is a really important point to me. I don't think I've spoken about this before, but you need contrast. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know what? I, so if if, I'm, if if you're stuffing yourself with good food three times a week on a cruise or somewhere, right? Then the mm-hmm. best meal in the world is not going to impress you. Mm. But if you're hardly eating. You know, and then someone cooks a great meal for you. It can be a simplest thing, but it's like the best meal you've ever had. Mm. Um, so, and I think it's a bit like that. Like, it's easy to say we'll get joy. Wouldn't it be great to just retire and just do nothing and like have your whole day off? Yeah, for about a week, mm. and then it's going to turn into Groundhog Day. Yeah. The reason why we love those two days of laying around, just watch movies all day, or do whatever you want, is because you've worked really hard for five days or something. And mm-hmm. so you've got a contrast, you know. If it's too cold, then I love the warmth. If it's all hot, then I want some cool. But you need the constant contrast to understand what cold is or mm-hmm. enjoy what heat is or what a full stomach is or what a nice meal is or, you know, what a good conversation is or, you know. So you need contrast. So people have a misconception or they, um, what do you call it, they put off, their life by saying I'm going to work really hard now I'm going to hate this life that I'm living because Mm -hmm. when I'm 50 I'll have enough money and then I'll really enjoy myself I'll retire and I'll be out they're going to be doomed they're going to love the first two weeks of their retirement and then they're going to hate it Yeah, you can only walk around Italy and eat so many gelatis and (laughs) you're going to go fuck another cobblestone street I want to go home and Mm. I want to start jump doing box jumps and <laughs> going to classes again yeah you need sure. contrast I, I i'm really i think that's really important and not many people talk about it so i like it when you work hard then you enjoy that time off mm. so more contrast is the answer to your question perfect um, <laughs> sounds yeah. uh sounds amazing mm-hmm. very cool 
John, thank you so much for your time. Um, thanks for the gra grains of sand, as you would say. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, you're such an inspiration, and so I, I really, I really do appreciate it. Oh no, no, no my pleasure completely. So um, yeah, I'll. Um, I hope, hope someone listens to it and gets something out of it. I'm sure they will. Um, just to double check, you're still it's Red Cat Academy at Geelong, is that right? In Geelong. Yeah, my school's um, Red yes. Cat Red Cat Academy um, in Geelong, um, and I'm there. Oh, our classes, my classes are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, but I only teach um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays. Someone else does the Mondays, in case I'm away on the weekends. I get a day of recovery. Perfect. I will have um, to make sure that I um, pop in on my travels at some point and, and come train. Yeah, lots of people. We we, we always have visitors. So, yeah, it's a, yeah, you feel free to jump in. It's a bit crowded, but, yeah. <laughs> awesome. John, thank you, and, yeah, you have an incredible rest of the day. Thanks very much, Brianna. My pleasure. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. So I could talk to John all freaking day and unfortunately we're on a little bit of a time schedule otherwise it would be a 24-hour interview but we have agreed that it would be beneficial to do interview number two, three, four and onward because I feel like the dude has so much more to speak about, so much more to offer and as I said I could listen to him speak all day so keep your eyes peeled for those ones and uh, as always guys if there is someone you want me to interview let me know um, and if you want to know a little bit more about the Live Free Movement and what we do, then you can check us out on social media on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the Live Free Movement, on Instagram and Twitter at Brianna Bowley, that's B-R-I-A-N-A, -A, Bowley, B-O-W-L-E-Y and with Twitter, just pop a little underscore in the end there because someone took my damn Twitter handle, that's all right, I'll forgive you, um, but until next time. What else is possible?